Let's start off that this came from a, a barbecue at Kevin's house. This is where we have strange conversations about, you know, class and race and fidelity. So. Oh, yeah. Yo, there was yeah. some fidelity talk that night as well. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. So <laughs> we're, we're bringing the uh, the um, the after party from Kevin's barbecue. came up because Thaddeus you said you asked you said what is white trash because you didn't know is that correct that's correct I have a vague notion of what it is from um like the trailer park boys but yeah fiction's not real life and (laughs) I don't think they're real people as much as I would like them to be yeah they're pretty uh, they're pretty fun guys Mm. Yeah, that's so generally where it comes from. So we were sitting around in the backyard, grilling, grilling. We were grilling and um, burgers and dogs. And we thought it warrants a scientific discussion. Yeah, it's kind of my wheelhouse. Mm. I've written about it elsewhere because mm. I reviewed uh, um, Nancy Eisenberg's book. What we talk, um, what it's just called white trash. Mm. My review is called what we talk about when we talk about class. Um, but she wrote this book called white trash, the 400 year untold history of class in America or something. Mm. And, um, it's an interesting kind of sociological historian and she approaches it primarily from a sociological perspective. Mm-hmm. kind of doing um not quite an ethnography of like poor whites but kind of tracing the kind of almost the kind of genealogy of of the the various terms that have been used to describe uh white working people mm-hmm. specifically those who are considered unproductive and who kind of exist at the margins of productive society. So going all the way back to sort of indentured servants um, and those who were kind of left, left out of the kind of the workforce. Um, so sub working class. Yeah. Sub working, the lump in, lump in would be the kind of mm-hmm. proper, I think Marxist term, but um, you know, she, and it's actually, a, it's a really interesting book. I mean, I have a lot of problems with it because she doesn't have a really keen understanding of what class is. She kind of adheres to the... That's a this, fatal, that's a fatal yeah. thought in a book about white trash. Yeah, she adheres to the sort of stratification thesis of class, mm. which I think kind of begs the question of how that stratification is possible. Mm-hmm. But um, she does pull some really great quotes from people like Thomas Jefferson, who describes uh, them as like refuse, you know, and... and she's kind of really trash. thinking about like where the trash term comes from. It's really interesting and kind of traces it all the way up to 
you know, the kind of the emergence of like the hillbilly and the redneck in the forties and the fifties, the thirties, the Okies in the thirties, you know, mm-hmm. um, and, you know, trailer, you know, mobile homes become a big part of the kind of cultural landscape, kind of rural, poor. Um, but what's interesting is that it's such a broad term in some ways because it can be kind of used so loosely. Um, yeah, people sling it around. Yeah, like Keith Olbermann described uh, Ted Nugent as white trash. Mm-hmm. And it's like, if Ted Nugent is white trash, I mean, he's a multimillionaire, you know? Like, so it has what, nothing to do with it. Then, then it's like suddenly the term really kind of loses its meaning and it becomes kind of a, um, a sort of useless kind of cultural term in some ways. Um, and actually I think that that's kind of the problem with the term is that it's, it's, it's kind of divorced from material conditions and it, it, it just becomes used to describe anyone who has a certain set of either physio, like physiognomy, like mm-hmm. bodily traits, um, uh, moral attitudes, so um, cultural behaviors, to tastes. Like pseudo race science style yeah. stuff. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Because the point is, is that if Ted Nugent is white trash, then like, what does that even mean anymore? You know what I mean? It's just, well, cause he likes to, hunt. to, well, cause he likes to hunt and white he, trash you used know, to mean something. It did. It used to be, <laughs> I used to be proud of that label. I can't be lumped under that label with Ted Nugent. Ugh. But I wonder, right. Um, lumping it in with Ted Nugent. So I'm going to get to some questions I got, but, um, isn't, so if we're talking about classes, and we're talking about divorcing them from the material conditions. I would say Ted Nugent isn't white trash, obviously, because the people he associates with in his business and personal life are generally not going to be people living in the trailer parks or called the refuse of society. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, these are people in the upper echelon. But at the same time, are these um, uh, typologies or nomenclatures, are they born from like a cultural aesthetic? as much as they're born from the conditions. Well, it seems like it. I mean, Ted Nugent likes things that are associated with white trash. Those are his consumer preferences. And so I think if you're a certain kind of neoliberal type, you think, oh, well, his, his consumer preferences are for white trashy things. So I guess he's white trash. Yeah. Well, and, and in the nineties, what's really interesting. and, And I wrote about this in the article, or maybe I mentioned this in the book, um, there was an article in the New Yorker, I believe, by um someone named Ted Friend, Ten Fiend, Ted, Ted Friend or Ten Fiend, I can't remember exactly what his name is, but the cover of or no, it was New York Magazine, and the cover was you know it was called like what it was a special issue dedicated to white trash and white trash America, and it had Anna Nicole Smith on the cover. Mm. Her legs were kind of open in this sort of sexually suggestive way and she was eating Cheetos mm-hmm. or cheese puffs or something, you know? Mm-hmm. And, uh, and a lot of it had to do with this sort of rise of what he sees. He, and he describes it as less to do with Marx and more to do with Freud and the id, mm-hmm. which I thought was an interesting way of kind of an uncultivated, way of an uncultivated kind of, um, morally, uh, decadent or morally depraved, um, lifestyle. Mm-hmm. Well, you can't call them degenerate because presumably these people have never had it. Um, right. It's not in their lineage, I guess. It's kind of, it's weird how it resembles race. Yeah. Racist reasoning. Well, I mean, so I think what's interesting is the idea of like a cultural aesthetic is that 
you know, you see this, you can do this with all kinds of different aesthetics, but the idea is that is the way I understand is that a white trash sort of emerges from a set of material conditions, basically. Mm. And once those material conditions are in place and people begin to sort of respond to them and to sort of construct lives and consumer preferences and attitudes and behaviors as a result, those can then be appropriated by other people, you know, Mm -hmm. for various reasons. Um, but that doesn't nevertheless, that doesn't mean that that's what the term is. You know, so there could be some cultural appropriation of white trash. uh, Ted Nugent, cultural appropriator. Yeah. Well, he probably has that sort of background. I don't know. I don't know. I wonder, yeah. Is he an appropriator or is he just, um, you know, like a, a promoter, you know? Yeah. God knows. I mean, at, at some point you might, make the transition into appropriator when you have such a disconnect from your, you know, your past that, um, it, it has no meaning in the music anymore. Yeah. Um, well, and what's, what's interesting about Ted Nugent though, too, is that he's a guy who's, he's kind of a survivalist. He's one of those, he likes mm-hmm. to hunt mm-hmm. and that's not really like a white trash thing. You know what I mean? Really? I don't know. I mean, I feel like we're, we're still throwing this word around and it's not like defined yeah. well enough. Right. To know. So let's, let's start. Oh, I got some questions for that. Um, first off, like I think if we're going to talk about this scientifically, like Daniel said, um, <laughs> what what is what is a class basically? What are, like what are the social and economic components of a class, basically? Mm. And what I'm trying to get at is how we talked about a cultural aesthetic versus the material conditions, because I think both of those. Um, I think the cultural aesthetic arises from the material conditions. So we can start with the material conditions, but let's just talk about um, both of those in the context of what you guys, your experience of what white trash is. Or yours. I mean, we got a lot to talk. Well, class is a, I mean, the most basic class is a social relation. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I don't know. How, do you want to add to that? Well, there's. It seems like there there are a few ways to think about it. I mean, there's a sort of traditional Marxist way to think about it, where, you know, it's <clears throat> what's your relation. You know, what your relation to the means of production is mm-hmm. will determine which class you're in. Yeah. And so, for that sort of traditional Marxist view, I think like uh, Engels, like the classic formulation is Engels, uh, socialism utopian and scientific espouses this kind of view and it's all about the machines basically the means of production yeah in your relation to them do you own them or do you use them and are they owned by someone else um so ownership relations with respect to the means of production but that is a kind of reductive um view i think better would be to frame things in terms of value rather than the machines because machines only count as means of production um machines only count as capital or means of production are only capital in certain social relations. Right. And so better, I think, would be to understand class not as a group of people's relation to the means of production. Because, I mean, you know, tribes somewhere have relations to the means with which they produce things. But that doesn't necessarily yield classes. I think the best way to think about it would be, what is your relation to value production? Mm-hmm. Namely, are you a wage laborer? You salaried on the one hand, or are you, let's say, absentee owner of capital, the recipient of dividends, and so forth? Mm-hmm. And so we could say, yeah, capital uh, class is a relation; it's a value relation. 
or it's your position in a system of value production, surplus value production, profit formation and accumulation of capital. That's, I mean, how I'd put it. So right. those are two sort of Marxist views. There are other less rigorous um, views too, of course. Okay. So what would be the, 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 uh, the relation to value production of someone in, uh, you know, a white trash. Like first we have like, what would that, what would that relationship be? That is the stereotype of someone who is white trash. Well, I think that if you're going to do the, the, in the truest sense, uh, not someone like Ted Nugent, Mm -hmm. uh, but in the truest sense is someone who, um, is not a productive laborer. Mm -hmm. They don't produce value. Maybe they work, uh, precariously or have some Mm -hmm. unstable form of employment, but typically speaking, white trash is considered, um, someone who is totally unproductive and really not, um, uh, a kind of, uh, reliable member of the workforce. Mm -hmm. It's, Um, it's, it's lump and proletariat deproletarianized. Yeah. 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 Yeah, Gig stuff or I don't know, even maybe like under the table stuff. Sure. All kinds of things of sort of questionable, uh, you know, maybe not paying taxes on this, maybe yeah. you know, fudging that. Right. I don't know. I mean, it's definitely not what you think of as working class, which is, you know, producing surplus value. Well, and they can often be the recipients of entitlements as well because they're so poor mm-hmm. and because they don't have reliable or steady employment. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, this right, is I was also, no, oh, yeah, I, I mean, was, I was like, also yeah. wondering. Oh, go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> I was, I was also wondering like my experience with it. So like in college worked at Walmart and Carbondale for four years mm-hmm. and, um, you know, everyone working there, a lot of people are on a public assistance, right? Cause Walmart sucks. Um, but it's stable, right? Mm-hmm. It's stable employment, but a lot of people live in trailer parks and uh, things like that. Um, and I'm wondering like, is that the stereotype of someone who would be called white trash, that they don't have stable employment, that they do jobs that are under the table, that, you know, there's a connection to crime or because the people who work at Walmart get lumped into that um, stereotype, too. But they're generally just living out the best life that they can can get, mm-hmm. you know, out of, out of what's to offer where they where they're born. Right. So there's there's that um that that divergence from like the stereotype of the criminal versus like what the majority of the people who have the aesthetic, um, actually, um, um, you know, do day to day. So, um, I'm wondering as far as it's, cause I think since this isn't actually like a real thing, right. This is a stereotype we're talking about. Yeah. So, it can manifest materially. We're not actually talking about like, um, you know, uh, productive labor or unproductive labor. We're not talking about teachers. We're not talking about a, a class of workers mm-hmm. or a subclass of workers. What we're talking about is a stereotype. Mm-hmm. So what are, so what we're actually talking about is kind of an aesthetic, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. So we're talking about how that aesthetic arises from material conditions and we're talking about um, mm-hmm. what that aesthetic looks like. Um, 
So what I'm getting at is class wise, um, how you were, uh, Adam, you were getting at um, people who receive public assistance being one of the characteristics of the um, the material conditions. Um, so what would be the other material conditions like um, what is their like like you were getting at housing, um, their housing relations, work relations um, and, um, you know, relations to the state in general, if we can frame it like that. Yeah. Well, housing wise, I mean, I think that white trash is gen- generally um, associated with rural, um, rural poverty mm-hmm. and the mobile home becomes mm-hmm. kind of the archetypical um, kind of housing situation. Yeah, Stability is sort of manifest almost like a metaphor in the mobility or lack of fixed yeah. location of the home. I suppose. Yeah. I mean, and I think that's because, um, I mean, rural land historically was cheaper than, you know, uh, land in the city. Um, mobile homes, you know, but they're prefabricated and they're basically just, uh, they're incredibly, incredibly cheap. Uh, my family lived in a, my family lived in a mobile home actually. Um, and we actually lived in a trailer park and then my parents got evicted from the trailer park and we had to move the mobile home, like literally like on a trailer mm-hmm. out into a plot of land out in the, out in the country. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I, there is that kind of, um, like you were saying that sort of mobility, um, you know, there's no fixed, fixed kind of like rootedness, you know? Yeah. Um, well, there is this, um, so the sort of, the surplus population, the, yeah. the, the, the kind of go surplus labor army, can. you know, is required to move where labor is needed and then they're released when it's no longer needed, sort of short term work. Yeah. That probably hangs together with that. Um, I want to go back though and pick up on a few things. Um, so Thaddeus, you were saying, I liked what you said. Um, it's just an aesthetic stereotype and that's sort of what we started with. And then we went into class and we'll come back to the aesthetic thing. But, um, yes, I think the way to look at it is you've got the capitalist class, usually in most sort of Marxian pictures, capitalist class and workers. And then you've got this lumpen class, which is sub proletarian. And then white trash is just a subspecies of this lumpen proletariat group, which is really just a stereotype. And it would be really interesting to see who else is like that. It's not a, its own thing. But the other thing is, you know, the relation of, um, I, I feel bad even saying it. I mean, white trash to the state. I mean, you're talking about subsidies and Walmart, uh, the Walmart situation. I mean, Adam, you said people are subsidized because labor is precarious. The question there is, um, Who's being subsidized? I mean, people get subsidies, but what that's really do is they're doing is subsidizing a workforce for merchants capital for like Walmart. Mm-hmm. And so the relation to the state is directly linked to the relation to capital, in this case, merchants capital, because people work in retail. Um, so, I mean, you get individual subsidies in the immediate sense, but in the more mediated sense, it's subsidizing Walmart, basically. Right. I think. I mean, I think that's right because, I mean, where are they going to spend that money that they're getting from the state? And and when they, you know, when you can, so if your wages are too low to keep people alive, if mm-hmm. you keep them alive, then that means that Walmart can keep wages low. Right, right, yeah. It's a symbiotic kind of relationship. Yeah. All right. 
Um, yeah, kind of to also get to where the stereotype of white trash, how this manifests in other, to get to the race and the race side of racing, the racing class discussion mm-hmm. we're having. Um, first, I, 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 so, you know, um, one interesting thing you said that I'll point out, and then I'm going to ask a couple of uh, more questions. One interesting thing you pointed out is that white, white trash, that stereotype is um, identified by mobility. Whereas when you have like the uh, the black corollary, right, um, the the black stereotype of the welfare queen or the thug or the urban black, right, mm-hmm. let's put it that way, is um, basically it's not mobile. It's the lack of mobility. Yeah, that's the stereotype hmm. that they live in ghettos, right? So you're expendable. It's not just that. So that's where. I don't know if there's as much of a that, that would be also interesting to talk about. Is there a communal aspect to being white trash or is it more atomized? Because being uh, urban black, you are stuck in a region. You're in a, you're ghettoized. Right. So it's not just you that is expendable. It's your whole area that you're from and where you live. That's expendable mm-hmm. as far as. We're not going to invest in these communities because they're deemed not safe because those people are there, which means um, there's going to be no business there. There's going to be no jobs. So you are going to have to look for precarious work. So that's where the relationship can generate crime. Mm -hmm. So I'm just wondering if there is a a real mobility to the white trash stereotype. Mm. Um, Where does the stereotype of crime come from if the mobility is the option because it seems like the crime for the urban black stereotype or the thug or the welfare queen comes from the lack of mobility. Um, That you're expendable, that your whole community is expendable, which means that you can't really, you'd have to go all the way outside of your community, which would take you out of that class or that group. And once you did that, um, you wouldn't have to look as much for the precarious work. You would just move to where the work is um, in order to get out of your situation. But if white trash is stereotyped as in they're always mobile, then to me, it seems like um, the need for um, precarious work wouldn't be as necessary because you, they pretty much right. function as uh, nomads mm-hmm. to an extent. Well, I they just go where the work yeah, is. Yeah. I mean, I wouldn't say the white trash is like, mobile in some sort of like, mm-hmm. um, you know, neoliberal, mm-hmm. you know, flexible economy kind Except of maybe, sense. I mean, people are downwardly mobile, but that's not the same. Yeah. Thing. Yeah. I mean, I, I do think that, you know, white trash communities are certainly, um, there are white trash communities, um, you know, a trailer park, for instance, um, rural, you know, there are rural, com- rural communities that are small, um, but are nevertheless kind of all, you know, suffering from the same problems, primarily a structural one, mm-hmm. which is that like, you know, by virtue of geography, you know, rural spaces do not have the same kind of access mm-hmm. to institutions, to infrastructure, um, and to all those kinds of things, um, that you get, um, in cities or even in suburbs. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Yeah, I mean the 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 correlate of uh the ghetto and the rural situation is you could say the trailer park. Yeah. It's a small place. Mm-hmm. 
cheaper, less, you know, is invested in it. It's less sturdy sort of construction, you know, can it be easily dismantled and, you know, there isn't maybe gentrification in the same way in the rural setting as there is in the city, but it's pretty easy probably to knock down a trailer park and to build a strip mall or something. Sure. I mean, I'm in our hometown, there were little trailer parks that are now basically all vacant, you know Mm -hmm. what I mean? Or, or have been destroyed and replaced Mm -hmm. with something else. Yeah. So it is geographically sort of bound, like, and even if it's not a trailer park, it's, I mean, there are neighborhoods, you know, I imagine, you know, easily I can recall pockets of, so like downtown in our hometown, half of the downtown on the north side of the bridge has just been knocked down. Yeah. And behind it is a, what was a neighborhood full of homes, I suppose, where working people lived and it's been knocked down and it's going to be developed. Yeah. So it's geographically bound too, but I suppose in a different way in a rural setting or semi-rural setting. Yeah. Uh, but this is really interesting though, the the comparison between white trash and the so-called and the so-called welfare clean, queen or thug, um, because it would be really interesting to see how these aren't different. Yeah. If that's possible. Well, they're right. not, I mean, I, 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 so do you know the work of Thomas Sowell? No. He's a kind no, of conservative libertarian thinker. He writes a lot about race. Um, he's, he's an interesting guy. I mean, I disagree with his conclusions, but his analysis is, I think, generally pretty accurate. And he has this essay called Black Rednecks. Mm. Um, and he's kind of tracing the history and the relationship, um, between like rednecks and, you know, the thug basically. Um, and for him, he, you know, he's the one who I think kind of points out that all of the kind of stereotypes of the redneck or, you know, white, you know, maybe we could use that as a rough kind of, um, equivalent or subtype of like a white trash person. Crude, unrefined. Yeah. Um, working. they share the same, um, as he would say, they share the same kind of characteristics or the same attributes as like the black ghetto dweller, Mm. um, which is that they are, um, you know, um, sexually promiscuous, violent, um, lazy, um, uh, uneducated, um, you know, all of these kinds of tasteless. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Uh, crude, um, you know, they like drugs, you know, um, there's a kind of glorification of, of drugs and sex and immediate physical, physical gratification. Yeah. And, and you see this with, with certain kinds of stereotypes of white trash, right? Like the, the white trash meth head, you know, that's like right. a very the, common uh, kind of trope. The in, crackhead. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. You know, mm-hmm. you see this and you know, in the crackhead you get with in both communities, mm-hmm. um, which is also interesting, but you know, like white trash women, are considered sluts. Basically they're hypersexualized. Um, they often have several children out of wedlock. Um, there's a kind of moral looseness to them, you know, and you get this, the same thing with the kind of stereotypical welfare queen, um, mm. you know, and the men are hypersexualized and unbound, generally speaking, um, the fa- of, family structures, potent beyond their own capacity to yeah, control it. Family, mm. family structures are similarly, kind of disintegrated in some sense. Um, you know, families get torn apart, uh, but they also tend to, you know, white trash 
there, there tends to be a, you know, children living with their parents and their grandparents for generations because they can't afford to live anywhere else, you know? So you get trailers packed full of, you know, a granddad, a mom and a bunch of kids or whatever, you know, or, um, and so there are a lot of, I mean, those, those, the way that those two kind of stereotypes map onto one another is very interesting, I think. Um, and that's why I think, you know, white trash as a kind of cultural thing, mm -hmm. you know, it's, it's a way right. of kind of, um, lumping together a certain group of, you know, poor white people. Um, but it doesn't really address the kind of class issue and that, and the reason I think you can tell it's a kind of class issue, class issue is that you basically get the same expression of, of those attributes in a, in a completely different setting in a, with a different race. Mm. How do you mean? Well, so, so if it's just about like being white mm -hmm. or whatever, mm -hmm. if it's something exclusive to white trash, mm -hmm. why is it that like there's this other sort of um, counterpart, a counterpart, um, a kind of racial counterpart that shares almost identical characteristics? Mm -hmm. Like what I, it seems to me that the only way you can really explain mm -hmm. the kind of similarity between those things is that they have a, some, they occupy a similar class position. Like they look similar. They sound similar. Hmm, maybe they are similar. Yeah, or maybe right. they're the same. What, what were you going to say that is? Yeah, um, kind of what that brings to mind is kind of like um, the relationship to the law. And I'm wondering if it's because um, hmm. looking at race and, and like the difference between white, black, Asian, you know, uh, Mexican or Hispanic. Um, it, it's kind of a lot of it comes out in the relationship that you have to the law, because most of what I'm going to talk about comes from like relationships I've had. And I've known dudes that were, you know, from, from Southern that people would aesthetically think were white trash. They, they generally hated the law more than I did. Right. Mm. Yeah. And it seems kind of useful to make this category of white trash because you can't make the law fully racist. Like it was after the civil rights movement, right? You had the civil rights acts that pretty much, well, in a way made the law on paper fair. Right. Mm -hmm. But then you have to explain why do we need, a, um, you know, um, a, a prison industrial complex? Why do we need so many people in prison and how, how why are so many black people going? And we you have to make it generally acceptable. So the white trash component explains the white people that are going to those prisons and have that negative relationship to the law. And you can maintain kind of that racial hierarchy from that because we're not we're not being racist. This is just people who are in this socioeconomic condition that have, you know, go to prison and do these bad things. And that's why they're in prison. It's and then what it does is it allows you to um, basically have a subcategory within a, a white category that is expendable. Oh, right. Yeah. So then mm -hmm. what happens in the other categories, black and Hispanic, it doesn't matter because it's not racist. It's just about personal accountability mm -hmm. and it's about um here are basically uh separate ways of life um these kids are less advantaged because their mothers are promiscuous right mm -hmm. their fathers are absent without explaining why are their what you know the mothers being promiscuous i don't think that's even an issue that's just you know some bs that people put on that's morality yeah. politics yeah. which is irrelevant to me but the absentee father there's a reason for that right and they explain it as these people are criminals, which is the same for white trash, which makes them expendable. And then it's the same for almost black in general, but more so 
um, you know, the thug or the urban black or, you know, people in the ghetto. Right. Um, that's how they explain away the maltreatment of different groups of people. You have to create a stereotype that allows for that mistreatment and the creation of white trash allowed the mistreatment of white people when equality arose in on paper in the system. Mm. So there has to be a reason now. Um, it, it's not just that black people are bad. Right. And if black, it's not just that black people are bad. That means that there has to be a white corollary. Right. Mm-hmm. Otherwise we are, we're being functionally racist. Right. right? So we're fair. There's trash. Well, it's, in a, it's a way of, right. um, it's a, uh, it's a way of justifying meritocracy, basically. Mm-hmm. Like right. it's not like it has nothing to do with being black or being, uh, you know, a poor rural white person. It's the fact that these people um, have bad habits and and they don't they're morally failing in some sense, and that, that's why it's their problem essentially that they're like this. We can we can mm-hmm. you know if you don't succeed, well, why didn't you? Why didn't you go to college? Yeah, well, the ideology of moral culpability is used to um, shut down any discussion of a causal explanation. Like, we don't need to look into reasons. Yeah. We don't need to explain this. We don't need causes. The the it's about choices. The final, yeah, the final link in the chain of causes and effects is someone's bad decision, and beyond that, I mean, you just sort of blame them for being irresponsible or morally um, inadequate or something. And then mm-hmm. there's nothing more to be done. So there's no political economic solution. There's just blame and punishment. Yeah. Right. Punishment instead of uh, rehabilitation. Yeah. Right. We make examples of people. So if these people are bad, just intrinsically, then you don't have to have programs of rehabilitation in prison. You don't, don't have to get them college degrees or high school diplomas or find them work they've are they've gotten rid of halfway houses mm-hmm. those don't exist in chicago um basically and what's funny is if you're on parole you're not out of prison until you actually secure housing but how do you secure housing if you've been a prisoner for 10 years right right, right? right. um so it basically allows for the general population who aren't in these you know dubious situations or uh classes to basically sacrifice them like you said thomas jefferson said they're refuse so we create a refuse class for white people and then we have this refuse class for black people. Um, and the one for black people has always been historically there. And, you know, the one for white people has been historically there, but we put that to the forefront whenever it's useful. Oh, and yeah. then we project like a, um, a an exceptional black class when it's deemed acceptable so that we can maintain these class distinctions as they are. It's just, to me, it seems like um, an apprehension to change, right? So they want to maintain the class structure, but since the class structure repeatedly is shown to be um, unjust or at least unfair um, to the wider population, you have to generate a stereotype to sacrifice in order to make that, that, that injustice in the classes acceptable or mm-hmm. palatable. Right. Um, so like the similarities seem to be, um, very apparent in the way that, um, these two groups are separated from, um, so let's get into like their property relationships. You guys are talking about people 
trailer parks are easy to tear down, whereas, you know, and ghettos are easy to gentrify, right? So it's basically um, your connection to property ownership or to the land is mm-hmm. non-existent. Mm-hmm. Um, so it seems like when you're talking about this as a class, if you're talking, so basically I think some, like what we're saying is that white trash is just a subclass of, you know, the refuse of society at the, large. Yeah. A subclass of the lumpen right. proletariat, the right. sur- surplus reserve army or whatever. Yeah. So, and then my next question is if we're talking about, um, you know, different types of class, like in America, we've created like the upper class, the upper middle class, the middle class and the lower classes. And I'm sure they fall into the lower classes. But what is their relationship to the other classes, you know, mm-hmm. and um, how are they either pushed aside or used by the other classes, both um for uh, psychological reasons and for economic reasons. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, so in the 2016 election, it was interesting because, you know, the white working class became the kind of battle cry for Democrats at, um, trying to explain why Trump was so popular, right? And whenever you would see these uh, <laughs> stories by the New York Times or you know, Washington Post or any of these kind of major news media outlets, they would always focus on, not surprisingly, they'd go to his rally and they'd find those people who kind of fit the attributes, these kind of overweight, slovenly, trashy looking white people, you know, um, waving flags or whatever. And they say, look, like, this is why he's so popular. Mm-hmm. You know, it's the only way these people are so crude and, and uneducated and stupid. They, they they just love this shit. And that's you know what the I mean? Causal thing there, but of course, like of that wasn't his base. You know, I mean, the election proved it. Right. Um, most of those people, most people who belong to the quote unquote white trash. I mean, most people who make less than thirty thousand dollars didn't vote. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? Right. Um, and people so below the poverty line didn't vote. Right. Right. I mean, I think of the hundred and seventeen million people who didn't vote in the election, fifty six percent or something made less than 30,000. Um, and of those who did only 20 some percent made less than 30,000. So, I mean, it's heavily, it's obviously skewed toward people who are, hmm. who are, um, not necessarily comfortable, but you know, people who have a, a stable income, hmm. you know? Um, but the fact that like the fact that we became, that became the image, you know, the the deaths of despair thing became very Mm -hmm. popular as well. Mm -hmm. Like these communities being ravaged by the opioid crisis. And it's um, just such a tragedy. What happened? Right. And this is sort of Mm. the narrative. Like, right. And that was, that was the, that was the kind of liberal pity narrative. Mm -hmm. You know, if you're not going to vilify them, you're going to feel sorry for them because they're all junkies. Um, and that's incredibly useful because it doesn't it it, it allows the democratic party to ha- to just wash their hands clean of like why doesn't anybody like us anymore you know why why are people why are we not generating any enthusiasm well don't blame us for dumping the unions all of the so-called working mm. people are a bunch of uneducated hicks right 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 you know and, and for people who are educated of course that's just a justification for what their own path in life. Like, yeah, of course I went to college. And I, everyone could be educated if they just tried. Yeah. Well, and it also, right. it, it reaffirms their own commitments to certain, 
um, aesthetic and cultural things too. You know what I mm. mean? I eat good food. I eat good food. I don't eat that junk food I don't crap. Eat bologna and I don't white s- bread. You know, and, and I remember there was a thread going around on Twitter once that was like, "What are what are activities that poor people do that are considered trashy, but that are considered glamorous when rich people do it?" Right? Mm. Like drugs is one. Mm. When rich people mm-hmm. do drugs, it's like kind of cool. Mm. But when poor people do drugs, it's like, ugh, mm. you're disgusting. Same thing with like uh, breaking the law or like you know, um, stealing. When rich people steal, it's like, oh, mm-hmm. that's kind of funny. When poor people Greed steal, it's like, yeah. Or, or I mean, one thing I think of, restaurants. I mean, people used to go to restaurants. I don't know what's happening in Chicago now with COVID. But, like, at every hip restaurant, you'd find all these expensive craft beers. And then there'd be some really shitty cheap beer. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't know. Some, PBR. Well, PBR is good compared. I mean, it's like, I would think, like, Tecate or something like that. Oh, okay. Or, I don't know, like, something really bad, like. Hams. Yeah, something like that. <laughs> uh, which which I secretly like. But, Hams um, is good. No. <laughs> but no. It, you know, it's in two different settings. Like if you if you order a Hams in a, you know, some trendy Korean taco place. Right. It's one thing, but if you order a Hams in a sort of you know, a shitty dive bar, biker bar and like whatever, and yeah. Yeah, it's it's something else. So the cheeseburger is actually the prime example of this. The cheeseburger mm, was burger. supposed to be like a regular thing you make. It's just a beef patty with cheese on a you know white bread bun, pretty much. Mm-hmm. And then now you have gourmet burgers. You have oh, yeah. heavy metal cheeseburgers at Kumas, right? Mm-hmm. And um, you can go from selling a cheeseburger for you know a dollar fifty at McDonald's to selling a cheeseburger for you know twenty bucks. Yeah, and it's the same you know, caloric content is the same, um, nutritional content, but for some reason, one is better than than the other because it might have, you know, arugula on it or some, some other, you know, it's got, it it doesn't, doesn't, yeah, it doesn't have mayonnaise. It has aioli sauce, you know? Mm -hmm. Right. (laughs) Well, there are a number of things like this. Actually, it occurs to me that the whole craft beer thing is an example of this. Oh like, yeah, I'm not a stupid slob. I don't. I don't just. I don't drink. I have a refined palate. Right. Yeah. I, uh, <laughs> I don't drink Miller Light. I drink um, some hoppy. Yeah, I, I drink know, some IPA. Something like that. Yeah. yeah. Revolution. Yeah. IPA. Yeah. 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 There's that. There's probably a bunch of examples of this, but I want to go back to what you were saying before that is about talking about property relations because right. This is really interesting. I think. I think you know you. Concept of class. Um, outside of the sort of better Marxist discourses is pretty notoriously vague and sloppy, I think. Um, We say like upper, middle, and lower, and we usually think of it in terms of income. Mm -hmm. But I mean, we're going to get, I mean, so it's it's hard to deal with class, especially if you don't want to go down the Marxist rabbit hole. But I mean, one good way to measure what is middle class is in America is homeownership. Mm -hmm. And so that is the, if you want to talk about property relations, especially in relation to rural and urban poverty, um, stereotypes about poor whites and poor blacks, homeownership is sort of determinant um, criterion for, um, yeah, I guess the, the position a person falls into in society, you know, when we're going to talk about property relations, people want to own a home and be middle class. People, I mean, um, 
I remember hearing a talk by Michael Hudson and he was saying that it was like, it was an intentional policy through a large part of the 20th century to not give uh, working black people uh, mortgages or to give them worse rates than to whites because the point is to get the, the whites in the middle class for some sort of racial purpose because of the political function of the middle class, the property owning class has a stake in the status quo. That that is changed. Um, but I mean, yeah, just sort of long story. First thing I think of is home ownership when I think of property relations and class. And clearly, I mean, white trash and all of its correlate uh cliche groups, they're not owners. They're renters. Or mm. what? I don't know what else. Well, so what's interesting is I think that I think that's generally true, but it's also complicated because in some communities, property is really cheap, and you can own mm-hmm. some property mm-hmm. um, for very cheap. Um, so, like my family, for instance, we we had a mobile home we rented at the trailer park. You rent a space. Mm. You know, you pay like a some sort of monthly fee to to basically rent the land that your mobile home is on. Um, it's like a lot, but then we bought the, we bought the property in the country with help from my dad's dad mm-hmm. for, I don't know what it was. And then we just moved the home, we moved the mobile home there mm-hmm. um, because it was pretty cheap. You know, it was out in the middle. Of, it's like an Arcadia, Ohio or something. Um, and so in that sense, they were property owners, but it's like, mm-hmm. you know, it's a, it's a different thing to own, some shitty little piece of land in the country with a mobile home on it than it is to own, you know, a nice home Mm -hmm. in a suburb or a city or what, you know, Mm -hmm. what have you. Um, Well, in that case, even though in that case, help was necessary. And so I'm thinking like, okay, so it's true. It's complicated. It's not the same everywhere, but in each case, it seems like either somebody's got money and they're going to help you or you save money. Or usually what's usually the case is um, it's determined by financial markets. Like, yeah. And you get a mortgage. Yeah. And so. Well, and what's also really interesting is that uh, during the subprime mortgage, um, the subprime, yeah, subprime mortgage crisis, 2007, 2008, the, some of the hardest hit communities were rural communities, mm-hmm. um, especially. I mean, they were, they're mm-hmm. handed, they were doling out really shitty loans to rural, to rural communities. I mean, some of those had, had default rates like 40 40 some percent in Ohio, you know, mm-hmm. rural communities in Ohio. Cause that's where you saw a lot of the factory farms come on the rise because it was even not just rural communities in the sense we're talking about, but farming communities mm-hmm. were gutted. Oh during yeah. That crisis. And, um, yeah, like I, I read a book, I forgot the lady's name, but this was a book on, um, the black codes and, you know, pre civil war time. But the, the important part of that is I found out that, my one, someone in my family owns one of the last black farms in the Midwest. Oh, um, wow. The Morrises, um, they originally were in Ohio and they have a farm in Illinois and it's the last, one of the last black farms in Illinois. So, and what they were saying is that pretty much all of like, when we talk about Obama, um, black wealth was destroyed because of, Home ownership was where black wealth was. Mm-hmm. And so if you're talking about a black middle class, it was pretty much destroyed by the housing market crash in 07, 08. And same thing happened with black farm ownership mm. and farm ownership at large. Um, 
So kind of those relationships and then going back again, since I'm bad with chronology to um, like, um, I would say the 1920s up to the 1960s, when you saw a diaspora from the South, when the uh, rural South was pretty much the Dust Bowl hit a little bit or during that time. And a lot of people, farms were destroyed during that time, too. And industrialization was moving people off of farms. You saw a diaspora of uh, rural black people up into the cities. Mm-hmm. Right. And there was actually a separate class distinction there, kind of akin to you guys saying that white trash is localized to rural areas, mostly mm-hmm. people in, that lived in the cities um, tended to think less of people who moved from the South, mm-hmm. yeah. that they were trash. They don't know how to use indoor plumbing. They don't know how to do this. They mm-hmm. don't find a job. They have all these kids running around with without clothes on. I heard all these stereotypes growing up. Right. So, um, like that's going back to um, that these people move to these communities. The funny thing is because these communities were cheap. So these people are in a similar economic situation as the people who live in those areas, but they're still deemed to be different. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think if you guys want to keep on going with the economics, cause that's what we're kind of, you guys are good at, but getting <laughs> to kind of the uh, cultural part of it, there is, there has to be a large cultural part of it or a social sure. aspect to it. Because that how that diaspora function was, these people are in the same um, economic class. They're working the same jobs. Mm -hmm. They have a different history as far as ownership goes. The people who moved in weren't necessarily owners. And you got that same fear as you saw with like uh, blockbusting, where, you know, uh, homeowners were afraid of black Mm -hmm. people moving into their town to bring down property values. The same thing happened with black communities believing that the value was going to decrease when these rural people moved in mm-hmm. and the home ownership aspect goes into that explains it a little bit, but there has to be a social aspect that explains it because they were working generally the same factory jobs mm. as, yeah. you know, their, um, his, their, their counterparts that live there through the generations. So uh, kind of to speak to, um, do you guys know of any diasporas of people from the rural South Let's go with the white working class, you know, name that was given during the last election of them, a large diaspora to these northern communities. And if there was any conflict there. Well, one thing I did. Well, during the 30s, there was. Mm. I mean, the Dust Bowl, for instance. Mm-hmm. I mean. Okies. Yeah, Okies. I mean, they so moved. Called. They, But they, I guess some of them probably moved north. A lot of them went west. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that was sort of like domestic. um xenophobia where you know you you live in california and then here come these yeah hicks from the sticks from oklahoma exactly and they got i mean it was a similar kind of situation i mean uh steinbeck writes about it in the grapes of wrath they were not welcome when they when they arrived well they'll work for less i mean yeah that's Mm. what that's the economic function i think in all this people who are displaced by uh changes in uh labor relations and markets ultimately make changes wherever they go i mean the other example i think of in li- and this is literature i i'm not i don't know the, the hard facts of the history well enough to give a super good account of it but i mean in upton sinclair's the jungle oh yeah there's the example when the um so actually not very far from us when the what was the, once the meatpacking district where the, where the workers all went on strike finally got got it together, managed to form a union, went on strike. The the meat packing sort of 
um, so the, the monopolists, I think, basically, they brought a bunch of former slaves from the South in on trains to break the strike. Mm. And then that obviously mm-hmm. fostered an immense amount of racially uh, charged hatred yeah. because of the economic and relations. And that was a major migration uh, or change in the so-called racial composition of the area. I mean, like, to be clear, I don't think race is a thing. So I use these <laughs> words, but um, yeah. yeah, that was one thing that comes to mind. Mm. Yeah, I would have to, I would have to think, I would have to look, I'm trying, I'm, I'm coming up at a loss for like a, uh, of a, of a kind of diaspora. Uh, aside, of white. Yeah, a white diaspora uh, outside of the, the Dust Bowl where they primarily went West. I mean, I, I guess I don't know enough about the Dust Bowl. I mean, maybe some of them probably went North to Chicago and other places where they could try to find work. Um, well, that could be easy, right? To Thinking about it. Um, that's pretty much like the immigrant situation. Mm-hmm. A lot of immigrants allowed in from Italy and, and, and uh, Ireland. Oh right? yeah. 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 They yeah. experienced that, that, that cultural divergence, even though they were working the same jobs and, and, Kind of like the jungle example, there was an impetus to exclude them from those jobs, which is also interesting um, because it, it goes to talk about the exclusionary aspect of um, how classes are solidified. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not just that there's an economic situation that's generated from lack of opportunity. Um, it's also generated because that lack of opportunity is perpetuated because of exclusion. Mm-hmm. And education functions as one of those exclusions. Um, and it's kind of funny. I wonder, going back to Ted Nugent and, you know, me looking at like um, kind of mainstream rap. I'm not going to talk like, you know, there's there's different types of rap. Just like there's probably different types of. I don't know what Ted Nugent would be. Country music. I don't. Country. He's rock and roll. I guess. He's rock and roll. Okay, whatever. Um, but how. It seems like certain people, you if you were a conspiracist, you would think they were an operation to perpetuate a culture that separates you from these mechanisms, right? Mm-hmm. Um, not to, like, say, rap music is, you know, um, degenerating the youth or whatever. It's But to say, like, um, you know, there's a certain emphasis on making sure that there's a separation between people who are educated and people who aren't. And I'm saying it more on the side of the people who are educated want these things to exist. They want certain groups of people to remain like a freak show. Like mm. They want to they want them to be separate from them. Um, so you uh, have, generate a culture where you're telling your kids, you know, you go to college and you make sure you get a job where you can work in an office and you don't use your hands and you don't have to sacrifice your body. And other people, they have a culture that's based on, I've known dudes who were like, yeah, I I know how to work in a coal mine. That's what I want to do. And we're working at Walmart. And I'm like, dude, isn't that dangerous? You know, like, you're a smart guy. Why don't you do something else? And he's like, that's what my family did. That's what I like to do. And the smartest guys I think I've ever met in a technical sense um, were guys who um, I work construction down in Southern um, on Alto Vineyards. And this dude, Andy was telling me about how he was stealing water from a stream and stream and he built his own filtration system to get water to his house. Mm. And and we, we turned a a cherry picker Mm -hmm. 
into a crane to put mm-hmm. trusses on the building. We we it was crazy stuff, man. Like what they came up with, and this isn't something that you know me going to um, suburban schools would even fathom, right? Mm-hmm. Coming up with these solutions, yeah. And hillbillies have ingenuity, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah. And it just seems like there there's a cultural component to that too of you know, get it done yourself um, and use your hands to do it. And there's the other uh, cultural component of get someone else to do it because you're smarter than them. And it creates this separation between people where it's not cooperative. It's uh, uh, um, a relationship of exploitation and dominance, basically. Um, You want to become the exploiter because it's easier on your body and other people generally disrespect that. And they're like, no, I'm going to work with my body because I want to get it done myself. Um, so it's, it's, it seems like two different factories for two different ways of life. Um, and that's a cultural component mm-hmm. that, um, I think separates the two groups rather than a, um, an economic component, you know? Yeah, yeah. I definitely don't <laughs> think we can leave out the cultural aspect, but it seems like the cultural aspect is a way in which these things are framed, which can obscure the sort of structural economic causes if we don't right. apprehend it correctly. So definitely that example you give is good, man. I, I, I remember growing up learning like ways to tie things onto things and, mm-hmm. would, you know, gizmos and doohickeys and gadgets and, all this sort of makeshift uh, and there are all kinds of um, uh, politically incorrect ways of calling this, but yeah, I learned it and it's that, so what you said really resonated with me and that's a good example of how technical intelligence is not the same as, so there's technical, so it's not a matter of people not being intelligent in a technical sense. It's a matter of people not desiring spontaneously or knowing how to do it the cultivated way, which yeah. displays taste and cultivation. Um, right. And, and that's actually a middle-class ambition, I think, which isn't even, you know, the desire to become some super wealthy capitalist or Jeff Bezos to become a, you know, the, the total to dominate an entire sector of capital to become the sort of, king of the, of this whatever game. I mean, that's a really sort of more modest thing, but that's what I noticed there. I mean, you've got sort of technical intelligence, which you can find in the midst of poverty. And then you've got this sort of cultivated way of doing things. That's the distinction. It's not a matter of being intelligent or not, but yeah, I also want to go back. It was interesting. You said how classes are solidified around exclusion, which is framed in cultural terms. And, um, and the example you gave a while back was, you know, some of the some of the poor white guys uh, you met um, um, in the past hated law and police even more than than um, or other comparable uh, black people. And this is really interesting too. The resentment. Uh, I think there's one thing characteristic of white trash. It's resentment. Um, I don't know. I mean, how that. Um, used to be traced out through other corresponding groups, but what what 
I don't know how to put this. Uh, what what what's the deal with that? Like the hatred for the law, the extreme hatred for the law. I mean, you're seeing that now. Like Boogaloo boys, they just want to kill cops. Boogaloo boys. Boogaloo boys. Or what are Boogaloo boys? This insurrectionary boys? group of uh, right wing. The guys in Michigan, you mean? The ones who wear the Hawaiian shirts and carry around AR-15s. Oh, I see. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know much about them. Uh huh. Yeah, the same, there's a deep resentment among poor white people for the law, which is which is a curious thing when you consider how much leniency they get vis-a-vis poor black people. Sure. So I don't understand it. I mean, I think that has to do with um, kind of ideas of self self sufficiency. You know, like if you are, grow up in a community where you are basically forced to do everything yourself and learn how to do things, just basically fend for yourself, not in some sort of like, not in the normal way that we're all kind of forced to fend for ourselves vis-a-vis like, uh, I have to find a job so I can pay rent or whatever, but like literally like, you know, you live in a community that's beyond it, that's damaged, you know, it's totally impoverished and you have to learn how to, you know, jerry-rig a car, for instance, to get somewhere. That was what you, I was thinking of. Yeah, yeah. Or, you know, you have to learn how to uh, fend for yourself to just get food or whatever. I don't, I don't know. I mean, I think that that creates um, a deep resentment um, toward people who presume to know better or who presume to be able, who, who want to tell them how they should, who, how they ought mm, to live. But that's not specific to rural poor white communities, is it? Maybe not. I'm just saying, I think that that's, <clears throat> I mean, it's kind of common as mm-hmm. a sort of fierce libertarian streak across, mm-hmm. uh, cl- across classes really. But I mean, I think that, you know, one of the kind of cultural differences, I think that you see among white people, especially those who are more educated and who are more cultivated is that they sort of presume to know how to, how to live and how those poor people mm-hmm. ought to live. How one ought to do things. And right. And I, 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 I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't, it doesn't seem to me that poor people are particularly interested in critiquing middle-class educated, you know, people and saying, like, you, you should live your life this, you should be doing this instead. Mm-hmm. Or, you, you know, the way you think about this is not the correct or proper way to think about something. Mm-hmm. I don't yeah, know. Criticism. Huh? Sorry, well, isn't clear. isn't that kind of the reliance on the because the middle class jobs are different, right? So well, they require a certain skill set, yeah, right, or they're managerial jobs, right, right, right. So the connection of making this acceptable is I need these managers to, you know, um, I guess make the you know workers productive. I need them to administer the plan. Yeah, it's a, and, it's a knowledge economy. Right. Creative so, people. It's crazy, smart, <clears throat> creative. Exactly. Innovative. I don't Innovative. want a lot of them. I want them to be separated from these people. So I'm going to deem them as more culturally acceptable. So that gets into the question of who's creating the culture, right? Um, that's what I was trying to get a, get to in a roundabout way, talking about the music and, and, and mm. hip hop versus, you know, Ted Nugent and different types of rock music, who's actually generating this culture mm. or, I mean, it's not really being generated, but where is the impetus coming from? Because I think it does come from 
in a certain ex- to a certain extent who's paying you and who's consuming it right mm-hmm. that's what generates mainstream music mm-hmm. um once it's appropriated from a new style because originally hip-hop is about dancing and the mc comes in basically to hype up the music and then the hip mc turned around to telling stories about the community but then somewhere along the way it becomes mainstream and what stories actually get put on the radio are different than the stories that were that that are being created um you know uh on on in a, on a massive scale in in on the scale right so you'd have like spoken word poetry has an aesthetic to it that really doesn't lend itself to co-optation but if you're talking about rap you're talk and you you go into like gangster rap it can be hey let's promote this right um let's put this on the radio like i remember yo mtv raps stopped putting a lot of types of hip hop on there because they said people just don't get it there it's too smart type of thing so once you decide something is too smart and it's not marketable to the wider range of people, you start deciding what people hear and which can have an effect of, you know, how they culturally display themselves and how they develop, you know, as 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 young people. Um, so, like, um, basically, it's a question of who is actually producing these cultures. Is it the economics that's producing the culture or is it um, the economists basically like the business I'm Walmart. I want to sell you some stuff. So I generate a culture around this product or instead of calling my place um, Bass Pro Shop, I call it Rule King, you know, because that speaks to people, stuff like that. Um, And then you have an urban outfitters up here versus a target. They're selling the same things, but you know, are the, the products all come from China or Taiwan or Mexico or wherever the hell else they come from because we don't produce things here. We're all buying generally the same materials. They just have a different look to them, which is decided by um, both your economic condition and what you can buy, but more so it's not, you know, um, based off of what materials you can get. It's based off of what they're selling you. Um, so like the question is who is actually generating these, these, um, these stereotypes, is it being generated from the people? Um, like we were getting to before that the economic situation generates the, the class aesthetic, or is it that that's the beginning, that's the Genesis, but then it's co-opted and it's perpetuated by markets that want to capitalize off of that aesthetic. Yeah, that's a good question. Man, I don't know. I mean, on the one hand, culture does seem to be a situation, but on the other hand, it's obviously a product which is curated and, yeah, you know, produced. I mean, one thing I think of is, uh, we keep talking about Ted Nugent, but um, I mean, <laughs> the only reason that guy, he's not cool, and that stuff is not cool. If it was ever cool, it was a window in the 70s or something. Yeah, 70s and 80s, probably. It, not cool. And the only reason, so it, maybe I'm wrong about this, but I, I imagine like the only reason that he's getting royalties and staying, you know, wealthy. I mean, he probably makes money from concerts or whatever, mm-hmm. but I imagine, you know, it's these reactionary radio media monopolies um, all over the country, like where we grew up. Every radio station's the same. It's all owned by the same company. I don't know if it's Clear Channel, if that's still a thing. I think it is, yeah. Yeah. And they just pump the same 
stuff out all the time. It's not like the consumer has any choice. If you're going to listen to the radio, it's going to be 104.7 from Toledo, and it's just going to be Ted Nugent every three hours mm-hmm. and interspersed with Led Zeppelin and Pink Floyd and Foreigner or whatever. And uh, so basically they keep him rich. Um, I don't think there's anything on the demand side that fosters that sort of cultural production. It seems pretty curated to me. Well, with someone like Ted Nugent, there's probably a nostalgia aspect of boomers who remember listening to Ted Nugent when they were, you know, a teen or in their 20s and rocking remember out. Remember parties and, they can't remember. Right, stuff. right, right. But what I think is interesting, like speaking about like, uh, like gangster rap, you know, gangster rap emerges, you know, in the 90s. Right around the same time that like new metal mm. emerges. And mm. that to me seems to be the kind of racial um, uh, correlate of these two kind of uh, cultures. Because uh, new metal is fundamentally a white genre. There are very few, I mean, there are very few black musicians in two. new metal, huh? Um, Seven Dust, the lead singer Seven yeah. Dust, and uh, Head PE was right. one of them. Yes. Yeah. Um, and of course, of course, of course, and new metal is an interesting thing because it is, it's a kind of lumpen, um, expression. It appropriates aspects of hip hop at times. Um, but it is, there's a kind of similar sort of, um, fusion, isn't it? Of like Ted Nugent and hip hop. I mean, it's kind of like resentful, bitter, Mm-hmm. cool to rock out thing, but also with sort of urban uh, uh, Jesus, cognitive meltdown. Urban um, sort of what am I thinking? Like uh, urban uh, flair or something. I don't know. Urban aspects of urban culture. Right. <laughs> it's just, I mean, I guess what's interesting to me is that, you know, cause gangster rap, you know, gangster rap is, um, the sort of glorious in some aspects, it can be a kind of glorification of, you know, urban poverty and urban life. Um, the sort of like, um, the kind of, uh, masculine. I don't know if either are a glorification, you know, like when I think of gangster rap, so most of it seems to be, um, you know, story oriented. There was still the story aspect left yeah. that was from hip hop, but also it's not necessarily a glorification. It's just a, um, a presentation. Right. Right. right? And it's an unapologetic presentation. Right. That, and sincere. Um, yes. And this is just, this is how we feel it. Like it was a music that was made not for other people. Right. It yeah. wasn't made to dance to, it was made to listen to. Um, it was made to feel more than listen to. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I'm like, um, and it's not even made to learn from, you know, it's it's yeah. like watching an action movie versus, you know, watching something like the red violin or a history piece. Sure. You're watching um, you're 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 watching the news. It's the news is how I would put it. Um, and I'm wondering, like, for me as far as rock goes, punk rock functioned in that capacity. Hmm. You know, punk rock is pure emotion, you know, in the best form and how it was curated later. Like the, sh- the stuff that you get to hear from punk rock is 
Like we don't need no education or schools out forever. Like, like, like trash. Like I hated punk rock when I first heard it because I was hearing trash, like trash. Yeah. And then you get introduced to people who are in the culture and they're like, yeah, you were listening to trash. I thought Green Day was like what punk rock was. <laughs> and I was like, that's not, or, or like, um, Blink 182 was punk Jesus rock. Christ. Yeah. And we're, we're older. I learned that's not what it is, you know? And then you go on, you listen to other stuff like, you know, the clash, which people even say isn't punk rock. But um, then you start seeing that it is this display of conditions. And that's what gangster rap functioned as. And then when it's co-opted, it became a glorification of those conditions. Well, let's say commodified. It yeah. was commodified. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I think glorification, the, way, the reason I use glorification is because I think that for those... Outside of the culture, it seems like a glorification. Mm. Like, why are you singing about that? Why, like, why are they singing about that stuff? Are they proud of the? You know what I mean? There's a kind of confusion because they don't get it. You know, mm-hmm. um, and with new metal, and you know, there's a kind of a similar. I think it is a kind of an, it's an expression of kind of uh, lumpen. Uh, despair or something. Yeah, and pr- sort of mm-hmm. trying like to take aggression what a person and would otherwise be ashamed of and sort of wear it proudly and is it sort right. of coping mechanism. Like, fuck you, I won't do what you tell me kind mm-hmm. of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, Classic. Yeah. Uh, rage isn't really new metal, but you know. They were in that, that, amb- that orbit. They were kind of in the orbit. Um, but you know, what's interesting is I think that the quintessential sort of white trash band is Pantera. Mm. And <laughs> they had that kind of southern inflection, you know, flirting with a kind of Southern hillbilly yeah, rock, definitely. you know, but maybe slightly racist, you know what I mean? That kind of, mm-hmm. they're more rural. Corn would be the sort of urban. Sub- corn is suburban. Suburban. Yeah. Okay. I mean, urban. they're from Bakersfield, you know what I mean? Um, this kind of, but what's interesting is I think that the suburbs, you know, the suburbs are an interesting kind of space now because at one point the suburbs, you know, white flight, the suburbs kind of became the nice, the nice part of, t- you know, the, it was new at one point. Yeah. It's sort of, but now like, you the- know, um, with the sort of switch as urban property, uh, prices go up and the only people who can afford to live there are kind of, um, wealthy, you know, in a lot of places like Manhattan or mm. even in Chicago, a lot poor of places people in Chicago, subsidized housing. Yeah. Or poor people in subsidized housing. Everyone else is pushed to the, to the suburbs and property prices begin to decline. And so you see a lot of suburbs now are kind of, falling by the wayside, um, which I think is kind of interesting. And you get that kind of almost just sort of proletarianization of the suburbs happening mm. now. Um, or deproletarianization. It might even get worse. Yeah. But I mean, what's interesting about like corn, for instance, that was like a, you know, that new metal was a, an expression. It was a, the perfect genre for kids whose lives weren't exactly bad. You know, I'm I'm talking about from the sort of consumer side, you know, Mm -hmm. like it's, you know, you could, you could listen to it and you could kind of partake. There's a certain, um, uh, uh, authenticity to the music. It seemed authentic. That's what they were, that's what they were selling was that thing. Like this is real, you Mm -hmm. know, this isn't like, uh. That's why it's so pathetic when you listen to it now. Cause it's like, oh my God, it's, isn't it? I mean. It's hysterical. It just sounds. You're not supposed to be that sincere. You need irony. It's, it, yeah. Now, I think. Yeah. That, that was a weird window of sincerity. Oh, yeah. I don't know, man. Because I'm listening like punk rock music is very sincere. 
there's irony in it. Actually, you 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 might be right because there's a strong sense of irony in uh, punk rock music and a strong sense of irony in um in rap too. It's it's um the metaphor is a important component, right? So yeah, I wonder comparing how comparing something work. to something else, or I would say more in gangster rap, it was more similes became important. This thing is like this thing, you know. Um, and you see like comparisons to like when you, when it got, you know, more corporatized comparisons of like this rapper to Rockefeller, right? Rockefeller records. Where does that come from? They're comparing themselves to enterprises because, you know, the belief in that rags to riches story, you know? Um, and that's, that's also interesting that I wonder how that looks when you're talking about new metal. What it what do you think it changed into? Because did it go away? And with hip hop, what it changed into was the rags to riches story when it was really just an expression of the rags. First of all, it was here's what it's like. Um, you're going to have to deal with that. Then when you got other artists, we'll put Jay-Z in the category, even Biggie to a lesser extent. But, um, you know, or, or like cash money millionaires, you know, um, yeah, that's also gone that whole thing. You got this oh, whole yeah. thing of we're gonna turn this um negative into a positive. That's how you put it in the good faith light. But also it turned into what's important is the rags to riches story. It's not how do you cope with the rags, mm-hmm. which I think was the original story. Um and I'm wondering if new metal changed in that way because I, I think it's a toxic notion to say that what's important is rising out of the ashes of your despair in a sense to make it way too poetic for the genre. Um, but to say that you have to come out of this and if you don't, you're a failure type. No, of they thing. would never want to do that. I think it's just gone. That whole thing, whatever it was, is just toast, like day old, stale toast gone. Uh, and uh, they would, that would never happen. Like re- get out of it. Cause it was too much reveling in it. Yeah. And I well, think and what's the, interesting the, is that a lot of new metal bands never really rapped about their conditions. It was always about like their personal right. problems. It was perfect for neoliberalism because mm. it's depoliticized. Yeah. There's no social component. It's just like me and my bubble and uh, God, it just, you know, yeah. inside my bubble, this is how it feels. It's just rage, yeah. basically. Huh. So would you think like Eminem is kind of like an evolution from the new metal I don't uh, aesthetic? <laughs> I mean, that's that's all he rapped about. Eminem is, is he he is one of the best. I'll put it out there, right? Um, as far as like freestyling goes, which is a part of hip hop, he's one of the best. Mm-hmm. But what he raps about is either pure metaphor, um, you know, talking about m- mixing in like things about Dr. Gadget or I just killed the alphabet, you know, things like that. Just pure like wordplay is either his style or he's talking about pure emotion. I want to kill my mother type of stuff. Yeah. I want to kill yeah. my girlfriend, you know, and that seems to be how you guys are describing new metal. And I don't know where Eminem comes from is Detroit, Detroit trailer park. Yeah. That just seems like the expression and maybe new metal just got co-opted or like got dissolved into rap. There's some family resemblance there. probably. Well, the other big family resemblance is with insane clown posse. Oh boy. Oh shit. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, this is turning into something else. All right. Well, please. Well, uh, so they also, Detroit, 
mm, right. you know, um, sort of deindustrialized wasteland. But what's interesting about ICP is that ICP, I think, again, they kind of, um, you know, the, the juggalo convention, the juggalo conventions, um, the, that is white trash, right? For sure. Um, totally. And, but what's interesting about their music is that their music is definitely a kind of, I think, an attempt to express using storytelling and often very elaborate mythology. They have this whole mm-hmm. kind universe, of mythology, yeah. that universe that they've created that's meant to, I think, describe the kind of violence and decay and ugliness of mm. like of their existence. And granted, a lot of people who presume to know better kind of laugh at it because they think who are these guys with their silly makeup and their Fago and mm-hmm. their really crude lyrics and their silly, like, you know, um, almost childlike, uh, they're immature. Idiots. I think that's what a person, right. And, idiocy. but at the same time, it's like, um, that's, I think that's, I think that the reason, I mean, I think that the, the reason that they've never really been accepted, um, what do you mean? Outside of a very kind of, uh, niche market, sort of niche market of, you know, uneducated, poor, primarily white people. Yeah. Cause the know. market is actually in uh, that case, very, yeah strictly bound to a socioeconomic group. Yeah. And um, so they've never been able to sort of denature, uh, sort of subtract whatever embarrassing feature from that a middle class person couldn't stand. They, yeah. Because you can't, because it's, it's genuine in that way that it's trying to be authentic or genuine or whatever. And because um, that's what they're selling. And I think that, that they're a good example of how like there's a Venn diagram of urban rural, um, hip hop and metal and they cross. And these things we're talking about, it would be really interesting to see like the class and geography of these, if that's possible. I don't know if that's possible, but I wouldn't be surprised if that's what this is expressing. And I mean, I think ICP's popularity is really limited in some respects to the Rust Belt. Mm -hmm. Um, Hmm. I wonder, um, like getting into, again, we're back to race and race in this instance, like there's a fetishization of, you know, black people as a race in America always has been. And, um, Mm -hmm. there's a fetishization. I think why rap did so well and why things like, um, a tribe called quest and, you know, uh, rock him or Gangstar, you know, things that were more like, um, jazz and conscious hip hop. I don't like the term, but that um, fell to the wayside. The lyricist kind of fell off was because it's a lot more when you can fetishize something, it becomes easily commodified. Right. Mm-hmm. And my what I'm wondering is what the if the insane clown posse was to come out now and be new. Right. Would they do better since we're in a period of fetishization of the white working class. Right. Which is a strange manifestation in these days. Um, which lends itself to, you know, a lot of opportunity for cooperation between races um, because we're, e- we're not equal. I don't know if it's equal, but there is um, now a feeling of fetishization on both sides. Like I, I know that people in, you know, um, called the white working class or the rural South, you know, uh, what, what do they always say? Um, it's either like Detroit, they talk about people or um, in, in what do they always say? Like, um, Kentucky, you know, yeah. the, 
West the Kentucky Virginia. coal miner, West Virginia, West Virginia coal miners, yeah. right? Yeah. That, that moment that may have passed a little bit. I, I'm not sure. We have to wait and see because the shit show is about to kick off again. But it seems like 2016 might have been that moment when mm. the 15 minutes of fame for the so-called white working class, which is really, I think, a sort of fantastic fear projection of middle class managerial types. But I mean, it seems to me, maybe I'm wrong. I don't really know anything about ICP. I never listened to it. I heard about it at school growing up in Ohio, but it seems to me that their moment was really the, the between the late nineties and the financial crisis where you had a period of something like, it wasn't prosperity, but it was like relative prosperity for poor people. And you could waste money on cheap commodities at Walmart, which is what I think of when I think of buying an ICP record, I think of Walmart. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, you had a lot of commodities flooding the market, cheap prices, and people could get stuff. And that seemed to be their high point. I don't know, but I don't know. I'm not like a expert on it. It's, but I think that's past, is it not? Probably, yeah. ICP is hardly know. even a thing anymore. I mean, they still hold their convention every year and they had that march on Washington to be, cause they were declared a gang, a gang by the FBI, hmm. um, which is kind of insane. They were declared a gang. That's, that's awesome. Yeah. By uh, the FBI. But I don't think it, I don't, I don't necessarily know if it has passed because I don't think the opioid crisis has gone anywhere. You know, I don't, yeah, I don't think, think it has that any of these components, people being foreclosed on all these things are going to come back. Right. And yeah. it may be, I mean, it, it goes, everyone has their turn, but it seems like there's been a maintenance of like um, police violence issues. And when the foreclosures come, come back up and you're talking about people who are in these precarious occupations, like the service economy, um, they're losing their jobs and you're going to see more of these um, mm -hmm. deaths of despair. Right. Mm -hmm. Is what that that's still a term that's widely used. Yeah. Um, I think everyone is going to be put into the spotlight and these fetishizations are going to come back because they're useful to explain why they're that and I'm not that and why, mm -hmm. you know, I can analyze them rather than empathize with them mm -hmm. or yeah. co collaborate or cooperate. You have them. solidarity with them. Right. And or I might be one of them to end the fantasy. Right. They're somebody else than me. Yeah. Right. You know, um, and, and I wonder, I, I think there's a good opportunity in the future when these things converge, because I think they're all going to come back up at the same time. And basically it, it's going to point to a system problem. Mm -hmm. And it's going to be up to all of the groups that have these issues to cooperate. And I think you're you see that kind of in the I think a bad way of framing it, defund the police. But that's not for me to frame up. Right. But it is pointing at, you know, the structural issue rather than just the reaction to the crime, the justice issue we're seeing. And there there really isn't going to be. Um, there's going to be a focus on illegal evictions, but I think most people are going to not care that it's an illegal eviction. Mm -hmm. They're going to care that evictions are happening on a massive scale. Mm -hmm. And um, this is going to happen just as much in poor white communities as poor black communities. Right. And yeah, yeah we're going to see if, more of that, I suspect, with the increasing indebtedness and the unemployment. Yeah, right. I suppose we have a chance to deracialize things. Um what well, we have a chance to basically find the uh, 
you know, let's use a corporate term, the, the synergy between these issues, right? Yeah. Um, we can... We'll manage the revolution. Yeah. Yeah, we can manage the revolution. Synergizing um, the lumpen proletariat. Or at least we can realize what part of it we're in, you know? Like you were saying, that we are a part of that. I don't know. Um, well, I think in a certain respect, um, I mean, most millennials are in a, you know... Um, Cultivate taste. You go to college, maybe you, you read some literature, but or you can do it online now. You know, you can find find ways to. You know, I mean, I feel like a lot of the kind of cultural signifiers mm -hmm. are learned and expressed in virtual sure. spaces as well. Yeah, but I, I just mean I think most millennials are in a sort of position in the economy which is similar. I mean, even if, you know, it's not like poverty and despair, you're basically flexible labor and um, mm -hmm. people are happy to keep shitty jobs that have uh, cool connotations or whatever. And um, so, yeah, maybe it's all going to come around again. Maybe I'm mistaken. Definitely. Being a, being a pessimist over there. Yeah. So someone's got to be optimistic, you know, <laughs> I think there's, there's a shot, man. Um, I really... I hope so. You know, we're we're talking about these things and we're finding the similarities, right? And at some point, those similarities are going to be just expressed. Um, they're going to manifest physically. And with, you know, I guess social media, with the virtual space being so interconnected, there is a chance, like the, the part I have trouble with is that I'm not an online person, even though we're making a, a podcast right now. That's, that's going to be you guys doing the online stuff. But, um, <laughs> uh, so, but so most of where I interact with people is in the physical world, you know, the real world. And, I mean, they're both real, you know, because they both, um, uh, you know, curate people's, um, uh, they basically, they, they educate people just in different ways. Right. So you're built up through the physical world. You're built up through the virtual world. And, um, I think what you're seeing is that, um, a lot of these issues are coming into the physical world that were originally just in the virtual world. Right. And I think what you're seeing, what I, I think there's a chance for the virtual world to be relegated to, um, or uh, subservient to the physical world because people are going to be having physical reactions to their conditions and they're going to be talking to people physically rather than just making these virtual issues. So as people are getting evicted, um, they're going to be talking to lawyers who have to deal with this. Um, they're going to be talking to their family who has to deal with this. It's not just going to be a Facebook beef over Hillary Clinton versus Donald Trump, right? It's going to be a physical um, conversation, interaction over, hey, can you help? Can you help me find a place to live because I've been kicked out? And there's going to reach a, a, a point where we have to do something that isn't individually based because we can't handle all of this change. Just like people, yeah. yeah, react to the change of diaspora, you know, um, they're going to be reacting to the change of being um, dislocated by corporate forces, just like they're going to react to cultural forces. So and those 
are going to work the same in whatever community that you're in. Um, and it's just going to become more ridiculous. It's just not going to stay in the virtual realm, Mm -hmm. you know? So you're not, those bubbles are going to be kind of broken to some extent, because if those people have to move out of the city and into the suburbs, diaspora creates more relationships. Um, and as people interact with more different types of people, then you have a mechanism for um, that empathy that's lacking in the virtual space. And I think the empathy is going to be what allows people to work together. You need that first. Yeah, there's a phrase, I think, uh, I think it comes from Freud, but it usually gets used to describe leftist sectarian uh, groups, the narcissism of, minor differences. Oh yeah. Yeah. And I think in the context of the class stuff we're talking about, there's a lot of narcissism of minor differences. Hopefully there's a way as the economy implodes in the coming months that we'll be able to overcome these minor differences, Mm -hmm. which has sort of been the guiding thread of this discussion, but I think we should probably wrap it up here. Yeah. And Mm -hmm. uh, it's a good note to wrap it up on. Maybe optimism of the will if if not the triumph of the will really is Uh, i was gonna say (laughs) pessimism of the intellect but yeah okay okay i'm kidding (laughs) all right so maybe maybe next time we'll talk about uh, libs and the blue meanies all right all right man take care peace